0: Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Kay Millie, and I'm here with my co host, Nathan Wagnon.
1: What up, Kay Millie? What up? Yeah, yeah. Hey, what are we doing today?
0: We are listening to part two of the Placemaking Podcast, mm. which, if that was a new topic to you, it is to me too. And today we're going to get to talk about how this idea of placemaking drives the entire narrative of scripture. So not only did we miss it, we missed it like a lot. So we're excited. It's going to be awesome. We're back with Dr. Craig Bartholomew and Dr. David Larson.
1: It's like the entire narrative is about something and we're like, oh, we totally missed that.
0: Yep. Feels good.
1: (laughs) It makes me feel real secure in myself. Yeah. Anyway, you guys enjoy this episode. We are back this week with Dr. Craig Bartholomew from the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge over across the pond. Thanks for being back with us, Craig. We appreciate it.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Wonderful to be with you.
1: Yeah, man. If, if this conversation is like the last one, then things are about to get moving. <laughs> <laughs> And then we also have uh, my good friend, Dr. David Larson, who is also a part of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology, except he's in North America. That's right. And right now he's in Dallas. That's right. Sitting here next to me, which is awesome. So welcome back, brother. Good to be back. So we talked about placemaking last time, but uh, for this one, I want to talk through big picture, like narrative of scripture. How does placemaking contribute to or even drive What is going on in Scripture? So obviously, we have Genesis 1, and we talked about that quite a bit in the last conversation. But Craig, I'd love for you to start us out and talk about a sentence you said in the last episode, where you said, hey, like we have to recover a doctrine of creation. Mm. Why is that? And what is the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative doing to shape what's going to happen through the rest of the Bible? Mm.
2: Well, thank you. So uh, I'll spend the next fifty minutes answering this question.
1: <laughs> you know, these just real small questions. Don't just worry. About the tip them. of the iceberg. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I love these small questions. You know, they're so easy. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But you know, uh, one thing I would say: let's recover the Bible.
1: Mm, yeah, it's good.
2: Uh, some of you will be familiar with the thing you find in the Bible. So, often a passage or a section of the Bible begins with words and ends with similar words to flag for you what the passage is about. So, at a popular level, we can call that the bookends of a section. Now, just think of the whole Bible. How does it begin? Well, in our previous podcast, we noticed that it begins with the creation of place, heaven and earth. There's your motif or your theme of place in the very first verse of the Bible. Okay, how does the Bible end? With the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm, good. There's place, consummated, come to fulfillment, reached the goal that God always intended for it. So, so if we just recovered the Bible, and, you know, as evangelicals, we love the Bible. I'm just not always sure we read the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> we understand the Bible. That's so
1: true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's but,
2: uh, true. you know, so there it is just staring us in the face. And, you know, sometimes we're so busy with details that the elephant is right in front of us
1: and we don't see it. Hey, Craig, how much of this would you attribute to the Reformation? And what I mean by that is, you know, you had kind of the proto-reformers and, you know, Wycliffe and Huss. They're pushing the—getting the Bible into people's hands. And then the reformers, obviously, are going, hey, sola scriptura. And trying, I think, as a a reaction against some of the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church to counter that with, hey, we need to return to authentic Christianity, the, the Christianity of the Bible, how much of that is affecting or has affected our view of how we read the Bible? I'm thinking, you know, as you were talking about, hey, recover the Bible, my mind immediately went to, I think when people read the Bible, they either read it as like a self-help book or uh, some sort of to-do list or a moral guide or something like that. And then I think as conservative evangelicals, typically the way we read it is around the doctrine of justification How do you go to heaven when you die? And then after you kind of solve that problem, then how do you just kind of make it until you actually go to heaven? How has that happened?
2: Well, and I think, uh, as Nathan, as you will know, uh, the answer is not uh, simple. I mean, (laughs) church history is complex and history of theology. But I think there are very important markers in this regard. And I will argue later if you give me the opportunity that one of the most surprising books for a view of place-making in the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. Hmm. And uh, now I'm not gonna elaborate on that now, but let me just tell you that prior to the reformers, Jerome's interpretation of Ecclesiastes that it taught contemptus mundi, contempt for the world, Hmm. held sway for a thousand years. Wow. Now, where might Christians encounter that today? Well, if you have, have a look at Thomas Akempis' classic, which is the most read book on Christian spirituality, The Imitation of Christ, mm-hmm. it starts off with Jerome's interpretation of Ecclesiastes. Interesting. Contempt for the world. So, see, the world doesn't matter. What matters is heaven. Yeah. The world is not spiritual. What matters is the spiritual realm. Now, what is so extraordinary to me when I worked, and I've worked extensively on Ecclesiastes, who broke the back of Jerome's interpretation? It was the Lutheran reformers. Interesting. With a doctrine of creation. Wow. Single-handedly, they broke the back of that teaching that if you're really committed to Christ, you will have contempt for the world with the doctrine of creation. Mm. So I think the reformers, there's a lot of resource there that we need to draw upon, but we need to continue that work. Mm -hmm. You know, what has happened in evangelicalism is I think it's caught to the virus of Western individualism. Mm So what evangelicals do is they're so keen to get to the cross and individual salvation that they bypass creation in in haste to speed towards individual salvation. Now, one thing I want to say is individual salvation is tremendously important. Yeah. But let me give you a, a New Testament metaphor for individual salvation. In Mark's gospel... He has a beautiful metaphor for becoming a Christian, entering the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, individual salvation is imperative. But when you are saved, you enter the kingdom. And that means you become part of God's purposes of recovering his purpose for the whole of his creation. Mm-hmm. So we have to retrieve, you know, the doctrine of creation is the fundamental backdrop to the whole biblical story. And if you don't get that, you will misread the New Testament again and again and again. When you discover, as sadly too few evangelicals know, that the main theme of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God or of heaven, Mm. you will read that just about the institutional church or just about individual salvation. And you won't see that the mission of God, the Missio Dei, is about recovering God's purposes for the whole of His creation, and that we are gloriously called to accompany the Spirit in that mission, Mm. and part of that mission is place-making. For those of us in biblical studies, we are very aware our liberal scholarship has atomized the Bible. We sort of operate too easily, like a proverb a day yep. will keep the devil away.
1: <laughs>
2: and then we're all, we've are all we also atomized the Bible, and we have lost touch with what Eugene Peterson calls the grand, sweeping, sprawling meta-narrative of the Bible. You know, uh, the danger is that we read the Bible like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, good. And then the question becomes but you know surely we need to at some point fit these pieces together so we can see the whole. Mm-hmm. Now biblical theology is the discipline which does that and for any of your your listeners don't be scared of terms like biblical theology. Biblical theology is just trying to understand the unity of the Bible according to the Bible's own categories. Mm -hmm. So it's asking if you get into the plumbing and the inside of the Bible, what are are the overarching categories that hold the whole thing together? And in my experience, Christians find it utterly transformative when they can begin to see how the whole Bible, in my language, tells the true story of the whole world. That's good. And that God invites us to become part of that story. Mm, That's good. So this was uh, the great emphasis of the one of the most significant missiologists of the 20th century, Leslie Newbegin, that the Bible does two things: it tells you the true story of the world, and it invites you to become a participant alongside God in that story,
0: which is so much more exciting. Right. When you're only seeing one piece of this grand narrative, you miss the life that Jesus is inviting you into. It's so much bigger than we could
2: imagine. Yeah, Mm. for sure. Yeah, no, I think this is good news. (laughs) Right? You know, sometimes for, for many years as an evangelical, if I'd really been honest, I thought I don't enjoy this good news that I'm told I've got to tell everyone about.
1: Yeah, totally.
2: But once this very human, rich, textured vision emerges, you suddenly realize, man, but this really is good news.
1: Yeah. So help our audience understand, you said a minute ago that when we read the Bible, apart from an understanding of placemaking, then we miss it. And, and we kind of laughed about, Let's recover the Bible because everybody's reading the Bible, but we're not really reading the Bible. Hmm. Why don't you just walk through some examples of how placemaking shows up in the biblical grand story? And what are some ways that we miss it? Some common ways that I think our audience would be able to, to connect to.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, David and I could both talk, I think, at length about this, but it's very, very important, that question, because... The Bible is our authority. So this is where we listen to hear God's voice. So let's take a very basic question like, what does it mean to be human? Now, this is a question that Genesis 1-2-3 has an enormous amount to tell us about. And so we've already talked in the previous podcast, to be human means to be embodied It means to be made in the image of God. You could fill bookshelves with discussion of what the image of God is all about. (laughs) But clearly, if you read Genesis, one of the things the image of God is about is, depending on which translation you use, is exercising dominion over the creation, or what I prefer to call royal stewardship. Now, it's a bit like the example I use for this is, let's say you're a sculptor, and let's say it was possible that one day you received a call from Michelangelo. And Michelangelo said, look, I've started work on this sculpture, this major, major sculpture, but I want you to come and to complete the sculpture and develop the potentials I've built into it so far, so that you enhance my reputation in the art world. Now, according to Genesis 1, I think that's what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And that includes forming places. Now, how do I know it includes forming places? Because a human can only be in one place at one time. Now, this is a very sad thing because <laughs> it might have been possible for me to be in Cambridge and to be with you in Dallas, which is, <laughs> you know, quite wonderful. And then, uh, but we can't. We, we're always in one place at one time. That's why Genesis 1 to 3 moves from in Genesis 1 the whole world as a wonderful home for humankind. But the first couple can't live in the whole world. Mm -hmm. They can only live in one place. And that is not a nice little English garden, but the grand park of Eden. Mm -hmm. And what are they called to do? To look after the park. So the first couple are... Quintessential placemakers. So, you know, so we you know, I think if we just start to attend to scripture closely, and this is where pastors have just sometimes I'm overwhelmed by the terrible responsibility that pastors bear, because they have to help us to see what is in scripture. But I mean, there it is, right on the surface of the text.
1: As Adam and Eve end up not being suitable gardeners for—or suitable placemakers for Eden. The narrative pushes them out of the garden, but they haven't lost their creation mandate. And so how do we see the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, working this out through the nation of Israel— And through, I mean, obviously, there's a ton of land Mm. themes throughout the Hebrew Bible. And obviously, you know, the Jews or the Israelites become people of this land. So Mm. help us understand what's going on there.
2: So, I mean, very important. So just a very, very basic point. When they are uh, judged and put out of of Eden, they don't cease to be embodied. Right. Right. So it's not as though when you when you the sinner ceases place making what you do is you now distort and misdirect place making. So this alerts us to something very important that there's a way of doing place that is a stench in the nostrils of God and is sinful and needs to be repented of. Now what is the, the great example of that is Babel. Mm-hmm. So the Tower of Babel is a way of place making that embodies human autonomy and hubris mm-hmm. on an absolutely grand scale. So, so there would be a building project. Building projects are always a way of forming place Now, it's so full of irony because they build it to the heavens, (laughs) but Genesis tells us God has to come down. (laughs) Yeah, 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 right. (laughs) So it kind of puts their massive building project in perspective. Now, I think within the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the correlate to Babel is the tabernacle, which is the redeemed Israelites – first great building project. Now, now remember, they were builders in Egypt, but as slaves building the cities of Pharaoh. And you see, we don't see all this because we so spiritualize it, but it's staring us in the face that there's a way of placemaking which is slavery and oppression. Hmm. But now that they come out, they have this first, and, and it is, a very major building project. It involves all sorts of capacities with metalworking, silver, gold, fabrics, textiles. And one very interesting thing in Exodus is, you remember that when they are kicked out of Eden, the cherubim guard the entrance to Eden. Mm. Well, there are not many places in the Old Testament where cherubim crop up but they do crop up repeatedly in the building of the tabernacle. Interesting. And here, I think, is an indication that there's a different way of building, a different way of placemaking that honors God and leads to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And I've deliberately gone for slightly unpredictable aspects of the Old Testament because we don't see it. Yeah, right. then then there's obviously the land, you know, boundaries and and how you live in the land and so on and so forth. So place is clearly a huge element in most of the Old Testament. Mm,
0: Well, God gave Israel really specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So he told them exactly how to make their place. And so how does that apply to us today? Like what instructions do we have of how to make our places in a way that would honor him?
1: I was thinking about how you have the Eden Project. Let's call it that. I got that from our buddies over at the Bible Project, right? You have this Eden Project. And it starts, but it doesn't cover the whole earth, right? It's In fact, it, there's this Eden, and then in the east of Eden, there's a garden. And David, as you and I have talked about quite a bit, there are other territories. And so you don't see the Eden Project— starts small. And that's why Yahweh is like, "Hey, be fruitful and multiply, like fill the whole land and rule over it, subdue it. Make the whole thing Eden, right?" And then a lot of times we think about when the man and the woman get kicked out that it's like God is angry and, dadgummit, it, I'm going to kick you out, you dirty rotten sinners." When I think in reality what's happening is, you know, Yahweh is now covenanting with a certain specific people out of which this other image of God would come, and where the first images of God failed, this one will succeed. And this new image of God comes, th- the, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he comes and where the temple is a localized building in Jerusalem, physically in Jerusalem, the death of Jesus cleanses the idols, the images, right? It cleanses us so that we can become suitable places for his presence. To where the temple shifts. It shifts from a localized place in Jerusalem to You and me, right? Through the sacrifice of Jesus. And now you have a bunch of images all over the world who are now reanimated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening in John chapter 20, right? Where Jesus breathes on his disciples. That's Genesis 2 language. Like, hey, I'm going to breathe on you, receive the Holy Spirit. And then now you are reanimated, repurposed to Function like you're, you were supposed to in Eden. So it's almost like Yahweh brings Eden to us. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of people who are enabled to place make the way that God wants us to place make. Is that fair?
2: Yes, I think so. And quite beautiful, if I may say so. I know, so.
1: right? That's good
2: news. (laughs) It's fabulous fabulous news, but it's so counter our evangelical culture. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what strikes me is we've missed it so badly. Uh, so, So you ask your average church member, you know, what do I need to do to image God in Dallas? And it'd be very interesting to hear what answers they come up with.
1: I can tell you. (laughs) I
0: think I know what they would say. Most of
1: them would say, uh, read the Bible and try to live a good life.
0: Read the Bible.
1: And whatever that means. Yeah, well, and see, and I think where you can work with that, you can
2: ask them, okay, tell me, what does the good life look like? Mm -hmm. Because that's what this is getting at. The good life is a life that is, in my language, emplaced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the beauty of this is it's— you know people can do this today mm. you know you can you can have a look if you have like me a tiny little garden you know is my it's very particular place so is my garden something that is a work that god will rejoice in mm. you know my home mm. and this is not a call for you know million dollar homes i mean i think often they exemplify uh, not uh, healthy placemaking. It can be very ordinary, very simple. So one of, I'll just give you an example, you know, on YouTube I've been watching, there's this fabulous movement called the tiny house movement.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) It's not what I thought you were going to (laughs) say.
2: You know, and uh, which I've been watching with absolute fascination. And especially because I come from South Africa where I've driven past areas where people are living, literally, in a black garbage bag on a, a on a cold field. Mm. And so this is where I said earlier, you know, place is not just a middle class thing. There's mm. a literature on the way in which homeless try and create gardens out of tires mm. and other things to somehow become at home in the creation. Mm. So, so this is very, very painful, agonizing stuff, as well as full of exquisite possibility.
1: Yeah, you have a, you have almost like the chaos creature that we find in the garden in Genesis 3 is attempting to, and quite successfully in a lot of ways, is attempting to create his own place that's marked by dysfunction, chaos, disorder, pain, suffering. And yet there's this counter move by the creator who's going, no, this is my place. And I'm moving against that to reestablish what this was always supposed to be. And so we see that, obviously, through the ministry of Jesus and then the early apostles in the book of Acts, where there's palatial stuff there, right? Where Jesus says in Acts 1-8, which is really an outline for the entire book, is you'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes over you, and you'll be my witness both in Jerusalem and Judea, right? Those are places. Mm. And then in Samaria, which is the next place out, and then to the ends of the earth, which is obviously covering the entire uh, terrestrial zone. Mm. And I think that that's, again, that's placemaking. You're going to be my witnesses here and then here and then over all of it, Mm. that it's this pushing outward. And that's really what we're living in right now is that aspect of the story. But the story doesn't end there. The story ends in this, as you said, Craig, a, a bit ago, in this Revelation 21 and 22, new heavens, new earth. And that's where, David, you've done a lot of work in this area, and I'd love for you to just talk about that. I mean, address whatever you've wanted to address with us so far and then unpack kind of the end of the story, the the, the back bookend.
3: In my view the Bible has two great missions. The first one that appears is in Genesis 1, through 28 It involves telling people to be making a place. Eretz, the world is a place. It's the subject upon which our efforts are to be directed. And that sets the context for the front bookend, and at the end of the, the canon, the Bible, you have that coming to fruition. But that place that's being made is God's place. It's not just any place. It's not our place. It's God's place. Then you jump to Genesis 3, and humans fail. And one of the results of that is that the ground is cursed. It is repositioned to be in an adversarial relationship
1: with humans. Well, doesn't Romans 8 say that, you know, the creation itself has been subjected?
3: Yeah. So it's been subjected, and it longs for its liberation. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah, not that it's bad itself, but it has been made so that it produces thorns and thistles when we're trying to produce vegetables and fruit. Yeah. Then you fast forward to the next chapter, and Cain kills Abel, Mm -hmm. and— one of the things is the ground cries out. Yeah, That's a statement, a placial statement of sense of place, like there's something about that area that is wrong. Yeah. Then you fast forward to um, Noah, God's impatience with the whole place. God wants to reboot the whole thing. You fast forward to the Tower of Babel, and it's not just people, it's the whole sense of place, the locale, the art that they were doing, their activities that they were doing. And so God directs Abraham to a new place. And in my opinion, you have the beginning of what biblical theologians would call sacred space, Mm -hmm. this distinction between the profane and where God feels comfortable being. Yeah. I, I don't mean it like the sacred versus secular. I mean it the appropriate versus the inappropriate. And so thus begins this journey in which God is wanting to come and live here, but the here that he's live that he would live in would be a cursed place with people that are oppositional. So this mission of let's start with a nation and then these incredible numbers of chapters where just this tribe gets this plot of land, and his five sons will have this portion of it, this portion, this portion, and there's no other application than yeah. this is your sector to right. placemake. Yep. And then you fast forward ultimately to the tabernacle, um, God come first to Moses, and you have sacred profane, take your shoes off, you're on, on a holy place, and then you fast-forward to the tabernacle where God's, okay, I'm going to stay here, but the here that you're talking about is so dysfunctional, I need, like, boundaries and very fine, detailed descriptions of how we're going to talk to each other. And then it fast-forwards to a more permanent place, the tabernacle, and then Fast forward to another uh, temple, rather, and to another temple, and finally to Jesus tabernacling among us, and then we ourselves are. But ultimately, finally, God gets his place. Right, right. His place is Revelation 21, 22. So this one mission that has been ongoing in the background of the canon starts in Genesis 1 comes to uh, fruition in Revelation twenty one twenty two. The problem is that the people who were to be involved in the making of it fail, and so this second mission comes in to re-engage them, to right. save them, to get them to think appropriately so mm-hmm. that when they do make place, it's the sort of place that God would want it to be, and they're then... In an oppositional world, because it's now conflict with Satan, demonic yep, yada, yada. Totally. <laughs> <Sorry>. yada, yada. <laughs> yada yada, yada 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 yada. That's just casual. That's Hebrew. Yada yada is Hebrew. So, so anyway, that's uh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> thus, those two great missions are like the right and left hand. Yeah, you have one serving the other, and the other serving the form. Well,
1: it's interesting too because I've done quite a bit of work on the Great Commission passage. And there Jesus is standing in an authoritative position to be able to speak to these we call them reanimated images or disciples or students of his. And he's saying, All authority has been given to me, again, palatial in heaven and on earth. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm in charge. Go therefore and make disciples of the Greek is pontata ethne, the, the all of the nations. And I mean, if you read that in light of the Genesis 1 26 to 28 passage, really what he's telling them to do is, hey, the earth is filled with images. Go reclaim them. Like, go get my kids back.
3: And teaching them to obey all.
1: Yeah, totally. Teach them to keep it so that they can yeah. become the type of people yeah. who will naturally make the kind of place that God wants us to make. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And so you say in Revelation 21 and 22, God gets his place. Yeah. So unpack that a little bit for us.
3: Well, it starts off with the elimination of the former heavens and earth, which I take to be not so much the molecules, but the placiality. All the senses of place— the aspects of the locale are rearranged to be as if you moved into a different house. Um, so it's the former place is going to be changed to a new place.
1: Which we totally know this intuitively, right? I mean, this is, this is like fixer-upper. You have this old rundown house, and then you see it all the time. What happens is they come back into the same yeah. Molecules or whatever, but yeah. they've been rearranged. And people are like, this is a totally new place, yeah. right? The placiality has been replaced.
3: Yeah, that's right. And that's what starts it. I think we do ourselves a disservice if we think of it just as molecules and space. It's a place, mm-hmm. it's location, locale. Location stays the same, but
1: locale changes and the sense of the place is definitely changes completely yeah. different
3: yeah. Yeah. it's it's still connected to the former but it's it's now new but the next thing that happens is a city arrives mm-hmm. having been created in heaven and it's god's place it's it doesn't have a, a temple which suggests that the sacred profane is eliminated that everyone is welcome, everyone is free to come and go, everyone has a place at the table, everything's been taken care of. Mm -hmm. So the New Jerusalem, which is huge, it's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high in this vision that John sees, Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. let's just live within the vision for a second, that it's, it's huge. But they already knew that the world itself was the globe of the size that we think of it, Mm. of approximately 18,000 miles in circumference. They didn't know what was on the other side of the globe yet, but they knew there was another side. And so he sees this city that's unlike anything they've ever imagined, unlike anything Nero was personally attempting to do at the time, that just blows it away. And that's God's place. Mm -hmm. And so... Anyway, I'm rambling now. but
0: (laughs) So we've walked through the biblical narrative now. We've, I think, mentioned several purposes of humanity, from filling the earth and subduing it, go and make disciples, entering kingdom life and our salvation. And now we're living in this, let's use a very Christian phrase, already not yet. So Jesus has come. The Holy Spirit lives inside of those who believe. And so I'm hearing you talk about placemaking all throughout scripture, placemaking as part of us imaging God, placemaking in the sense of it is part of our responsibility to honor, to glorify God in the midst of our placemaking. And so as we've seen, it's such a vital theme in the whole scripture narrative. What do we do with that today? And so for our people listening, Craig, I'd love to hear um, just some of your thoughts on how does this impact us? How do we apply what we have learned today through the biblical narrative of placemaking?
2: Hmm. Well, Thank you. Uh, So it's so important to ground this at the most practical level, because it is the most practical. So let me answer that question this way. Leslie Newbigin says that the church is to be a sign of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the major theme of Jesus' uh, ministry. Now, what is the kingdom of God? And there are two aspects to it, the reign of God and the realm over which he reigns. Both of those are tremendously important. The realm is the whole creation. Okay, so all of us in this, and I love the fact that you use the already not yet, because In this era of mission, we've got to be a sign of the kingdom that has already come and that is on its way. So we've got to live and embody the kingdom now. So in other words, we've got to live so that people around us and we ourselves are getting a taster of the coming uh, new heavens and new earth. And I mean, the the what David set out for us is just so helpful. It reminded me of the biblical expression, and the glory of Adonai, the kabot uh, Adonai, will fill the earth. That's the eschatological vision. Now, what does that look like? It means that it doesn't mean that we're disembodied souls. It means that we're living as resurrected body and spirit in the new creation and that we are looking after God's world and developing it in such a way that his reputation is enhanced for the well-being of all of the creation and to his glory. So now, what does that mean at a very, very practical level? Well, a lot depends on who we are. So, for example, if you're the, the church building committee and you're building a church, well, then you better know that uh, there are angels around watching to see what you're going to do. You know, are you going to develop the church property such that the very nature of the place enhances God's reputation? Or are you going to go, people drive past every day saying, man, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. It may be very functional, but if that's the God they serve, I have no interest in it. You know, are you going to develop a church property where it's renowned because you've taken a very simple thing of filling it with indigenous plants so that, and and this is a literal fulfillment of the parable of the kingdom, that the birds of the air are able to come and nest in the trees. I mean, there's symbolism there, but it may also be literal. God notices when a sparrow falls, but we don't seem to mind it when whole species are being wiped out. The big thing to do is to become conscious of place. You know, the coffee shop you go to, become conscious of it. Go home and have a look at your home and ask yourself, you know, if Jesus came to visit, what would he have to say? You know, have I filled my home with disposable plastic? Or has my humble home got a mark of authenticity about it? Is it a place of rest and renewal? Have I made sure that the home is such that my children are able to be raised so that they're being formed into healthy human beings? Now, and there's excellent literature on this. I mean, there's literature on the fact that children need their own space, but their spaces need to be connected to other people's spaces. So, giving your child a great big ensuite room may sound wonderful. It may be very destructive for their development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, there's just a gazillion things you can do. Yeah.
3: Could I add one thing to that, too? Yep. If that seems to our listeners as important but relatively secondary, I would say that's because you're forgetting the original mission is placemaking. Mm-hmm. If the sole mission is to win people to Christ and disciple them, then that sort of stuff is nice but not essential. Right. But if there is another mission that pertains directly to that sort of stuff, then it is not secondary.
1: Yeah, right. Well, it's it's both, again, it's both places that we form and that also form us. And that is, I mean, you can't escape that. If you're going to bear witness in in any kind of embodied sense, you need to be thinking about in, in every facet of life, hey, how am I shaping place around me? And how is the place shaping me? I mean, those are the two questions that I think everybody has to deal with. It's interesting here in Dallas with a bunch of business professionals we're an urban center that can be probably easily characterized as fairly materialistic, that people here who are going to an office, maybe doing real estate, you know, maybe they're the ones who build the roads that we drive on. We have to think about placemaking in those areas as well. How is your business that you're running today promoting the type of place that's conducive to the presence of God? Or is it quenching that? Is it counter-formative? Is it something that's going to continue to push forward a place that looks more like the enemy? And those are things that are super practical. I mean, before you sign your name on that deal, you need to be making sure like, hey, have I critically thought through this?
3: And we tend to take and ask our pastors to tell them to maybe be—the the reason you have your job is so you can be a good witness at work. Yeah. Or perhaps instrumental to make some money so that people can provide yeah. for their families. But in place
1: making, your work is your, your witness. Is to be contributing yeah. to
3: the first mission. Yeah, totally. To, to making this environment, yeah. this world, yeah, yeah. a sense of place yeah. with a locale that is respectful
1: yeah. And if it. you're in politics, if you're in law, yeah. if you're in the justice system, if you're in business— all of these different in the arts, it's, hey, how are we promoting this palatial sense of the withness of God here with us? I think it, those are really practical things to think about coming out of this conversation.
3: I'm thinking of one of these days writing an article on Colossians 3. In the book of Colossians, it's filled with tons of allusions to the Old Testament, and in particular to the book of Genesis. But it refers to the Image of God, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus is the image of God. Well, right. it's Genesis one, yep. etc. So in Colossians three, where it comes down at the end of the chapter and and says, you know, whatever whatever you do, you do yeah. yeah. So it's it's talking on work, but it starts in with it refers to uh, clothe yourself with mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Those are sense of place sort of things. Prior to that, it warns against sexual immorality and purity. Those are sense of place sort of things, because these things, the wrath of God is coming. Well, they Mm -hmm. they saw that in in Babel. Put off all things, anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive languages. Don't lie to one another. Put off the old man, like the Adam clothing sort of imagery, and have been clothed with the new man that's being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the one who created. That's Genesis language, which goes down to, and the work you do as an image bearer, is to be done unto the Lord. That's placemaking. That is not just be nice when you do it. That's to do things that produce nice
1: things. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've got some thinking to do.
1: What do you think, Karen?
0: I can't organize them yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you know next podcast what I think of this one. (laughs) I've got some thinking to do.
1: So I think as we draw this conversation to a close, the main takeaways are place making is really a primary theme throughout the entire biblical story. As Craig said, it starts there, it ends there. And the story in between the beginning and the end is, is about really Yahweh repurposing the thing that has gone wrong so that we end up where with so his, that they
3: can in this life be about that mission, yeah, of bearing making.
1: witness to Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Yes. Hey, this is coming. I mean, like Abraham Kuyper is famous for saying, "There is no place on the face of the earth." I'm I'm paraphrasing him. Where Jesus doesn't look at it and go, "That's mine," and so the way you treat what I've made is really important, and bears witness and creates a type of place that's formative and i think the question is well then how is it formative for us are we contributing to things that are formative to life in the spirit as embodied people who are physically bringing about change in the earth or are we cooperating with the chaos creature and i think those are really important questions to ask so craig any final thoughts man before we close up no, oh,
2: no, just uh, it's been a delight to be with you and to do this with David. So yeah. thank you very much.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for your time and for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the work that you've put in for decades, literally decades. His book on places uh, where mortals dwell. Yes. So uh, I'd encourage you to check out some of Craig's work. And then, David, thanks, man. Yeah. It's fun to talk about this stuff with you, and it's, it's fun to see how the Lord has just used our friendship to bring us here. On a personal note, I, I would like to thank Craig. It just
3: blows me away. He's been a hero of mine yeah. for a long he time. You can fanboy a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, he, he has been. And to even be in the same circle for a moment in my life with him is uh, really an honor for me. So yeah. thank you, Craig. That's an absolute
2: pleasure. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And
0: thanks for letting me in the room.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation. And again, if you haven't checked out the previous podcast, please go listen to that and all of the other resources we've done on the equipping podcast. So until next time, y'all have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. Those are super helpful. And if you have any questions or, frankly, you just want to say hey, then shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Peace. Bye.